This is where I want to start this week, Scott. You're in the midst of a pretty substantial vacation, as far as I'm concerned. When I was working jobby jobs, the amount of time that you've taken off is pretty significant. Yeah. Well, would you consider this a significant vacation I don't that have, you're on? Yeah, I don't have to go back until the 17th. Okay, and and today is the seventh. Yeah, know, for for folks just so folks can do the math. And okay. I've already been off for a week. I need you to speak to the people real quick. Why is it important? to take your vacation time? Why is it important to take the time away from the job and really make sure, because, and and I've been especially guilty of this, the idea that, oh, well, I need to put all I can into X, Y, and Z, and all the vacation time will be there. I'll take vacation when I have time. So why do you prioritize not only taking vacation, but you'll take two weeks off? Why is that important? Speak to the people who got jobs. From about October all the way through the holidays up to the end of February, I was going very hard, Mm -hmm. taking big swings at a lot of different things and successfully, mind you. But I was starting to, um, I don't, I don't know. I I was moody, you know, so I would kind of get snippy or bark at people a little bit. Um, I was starting to make stupid mistakes. Mm Mm-hmm little overlooked small details that made big differences. I was starting to drop the ball on those things. Lack of concentration. All I wanted was sleep. All that. And uh, even here we are a weekend, and I've spent the entire time fixing a sagging floor in my house. And I feel like the yoke has been removed. Mm. I feel like I'm on, on a hall pass. I'm out in the field running barefoot, man. Yeah, you feel I'm free. riding I'm riding my bike past the Catholic school where all my buddies went and they had to go to school back to school a week before I did. I feel like I'm riding by everybody and just waving. I'm on my bike going, "Hey. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go get some ice cream." So See? back so back to the question, why is it important to to take time off of work? To feel this way. I just said to feel this way. You have to recharge and you have to get some distance from it because if you have your head look at you right now. If you have your now head you're down. you're turning it around on me. If you have your head Come down. Come on, go ahead. If you have your head down this long. <laughs> okay. It's going to start affecting the way that you interact with other people. Yep. If you don't have a chance to look at something else, meaning if you can't go and read a book, if you can't go and listen to some other music, something else that you like, if you can't do that, Oh my God, that's just going to suck. Your life is just going to suck. Well, all of that. Thank you, Scott. All of that to say, you know, I'm I'm very inspired by your taking vacation time. You you you've never been shy about that. There's a lot going on in the world right now. A lot going on in our individual lives. So take the time you need if you need some time. Because just my trying to keep up with everything and and not. I shouldn't say try to keep up with everything with my being aware of everything. We're talking about still talking about Ukraine. There's all sorts of um, uh, stuff happening uh, in other parts of the world. You know, of course, we have our regular everyday challenges here in the United States talking about uh, folks talk about gas prices going up. You know, that's something that uh, I have a lot of privilege in because I don't have to get in my car and drive anywhere every day. But I'm thinking about that single mother who has to take the baby to daycare and oh then go to work all across uh, town and, and do X, Y, and Z. And gas is uh, looking the way it does. You know, here in, here in the Twin Cities, is about $4. Yeah. I, I've paid higher than that before, but 
in you know for for us that's very high so i would hate to see what it looks like over in um southern california and and places like that so anyway all of that to say it's a lot going on y'all i hope that you will prioritize your health and your recharging so if that means take some time off work if that means uh log off twitter cut off cnn or wherever you uh, get your new news Please do that. Prayers to Ukraine and to the many other countries facing violence. I'm thinking about Yemen. I'm thinking about Ethiopia, Myanmar, Syria. It's interesting, Scott, how those places, and it's easy for folks to sort of dilute this to oppression Olympics or whatever, but it's interesting how we have been bombarded, and rightfully so, nonstop with news from Ukraine when there are very similar things happening in other parts of the world, the people just happen to be a little browner, you know, mm-hmm. or a little mm-hmm. blacker. But those there are people in those communities being uh, turned into refugees as well, based on civil war and all sorts of um, other problems. So I just, you know, I, I'm think all of these things circle in my head. I feel like personally, I'm feeling the collective stress of it all, and we need to make sure that we're taking a breather every every opportunity we can. With that being said, though, we have a job to do here on Triloquy. So. <laughs> but I'm going to try to keep things positive this week. Um, and uh, in that spirit, I wanted to uh, offer a downbeat. Uh, we're here in Women's History Month and, uh, and celebrate a woman named Kira Rudick. Have you heard that name yet? Kira Rudick? I don't think so. Yeah, I was doing some research and looking at ways uh, to honor uh, the many women in Ukraine doing many different things. And Kira Rudik's name came up. Uh, Kira has been very outspoken about a woman's role in the fight for uh, freedom in Ukraine, the fight against Russia. Mm-hmm. She uh, has inspired many other women to pick up arms and and do what has to be done. And she offered this message in light of international Women's Day, which I understand is today as we're taping this. So let's hear mm. what Kira Rudik had to say. Hey, so it's already past midnight here in Kiev, and it's officially International Women's Day. Usually on this day, kids are giving their mommies flowers and cards to say how special they are. This year, our kids have been robbed of this opportunity. They are either at refugee camps or very far away from us to keep them safe. This year, Ukrainian women will receive flowers, but these are not only flowers that we will be carrying because we are also carrying guns to protect our country along with our men from Putin, crazy dictator, and from the war that Russia is bringing in. I want to congratulate all Ukrainian women who are standing up and fighting. You are incredible. Because of you, we will win. Kira Rudik, I mean, shout out to her. What what can I what can I say? There are so many people who would never, ever openly speak out in the way that she is, much less actually pick up arms and protect one's home, protect mm-hmm. one's nation. You come from a, a a military family, a military community. I understand uh, as well as you do the masculine framing around military or around service to country, but. We're seeing something very different here. I wonder how hearing from Kira Rudik impacts your perspective or and, and the and the experiences you have surrounding that idea of picking up arms and protecting one's community and one's country from outside folks and, mm. and that sort of thing. I would have to say first that I bought into that 
masculine framework that the military has you know that whole yeah myth, that whole um mythos i guess the whole structure of it growing up until i hit about fourth grade and i don't remember what it was we were doing but something my teacher said kind of broke that image in school one of your teachers in school yeah my fourth grade teacher so shout out to mrs claire she does real estate now and uh so i also have to say that there were many girls and then later women Mm -hmm. who showed me early on that they were just as talented and more so than the boys and the men you said they got you together (laughs) me and my classmates (laughs) yeah uh, and plus, you know, most of my teachers have been women. Most of my supervisors have been women. Yeah. So I, I've, I have no trouble listening to, uh, to women. None. What would inspire you to pick up arms to protect something? What would need to happen? We we talk about the structural issues not only in the arts but here in the United States on this podcast. As racist as things are, from uh, not only the conception of classical music, I'm thinking about the prison industrial complex. I'm thinking about so many other things. What would need to happen for you to decide, as Kira Rudick has, to pick up a gun and protect what is yours? Yeah. It's easy to say something like if uh, my family was threatened. Sure. So if somebody that I love is yeah. threatened. But the only thing that I can say definitely for sure would inspire me to do that would be if somebody hurt radar Mm. Mm. if anything like that i i could be moved to murder (laughs) um so i think what i'm getting at is deep love Mm -hmm. that agape sort of love the the emotion that's tied to all of it yeah what if we here living in the united states could have that depth of emotion and love for where we live. And this is mm. this this podcast is called Triloquy, you mm-hmm. know. So let, let let's go there. Look. It's so hard for me to put myself in Kira Rudick's shoes because I don't feel that love of country because of everything yeah. that we have been through and all the conversations we need to have and the things that are continuing to be sidelined by the government, you know, much less uh, reparations. I'm thinking about things like um, student loan cancellation and, and other ways in which the government, uh, health care, universal health care, mm-hmm. the many ways in which uh, the United States government could help us have a reason to have that love. And Look, mm-hmm. I have I've lived and experienced many other international places. I can hear folks in the back of my head now, oh, well, you can't take for granted what it means to live in the United States, X, Y, and Z. I don't. And I understand what other people in other parts of the world go through and are going through, especially now and this time. And I think it's fair to have that conversation and look at what Kira Rudick is experiencing as far as love of country and obligation and dedication mm-hmm. and what would really have to happen for us, for more of us to have that feeling. Yeah, there are plenty of folks out there who are American flag waving. You know, my father was a Marine. I'm eight generation Marine, whatever. You mm-hmm. know, all of that is out there. I think that and we can find ways to help us have the same feeling as Kira Rudick 
we're all going to be better. All all citizens over here on the West, all of our boats are going to rise because there's something in it for us. There's there's something that uh, is benefiting us. There's there's a genuine feeling of love that has been curated and, and cultivated based on that relationship between woman and country, man and country, individual and mm. country, and just hearing uh, Kira Rudick's words are inspiring to me. It, it it helps me think about what a reality could look like where I want to pick up arms and protect something that is here, mm. something you know that that I have proximity to. Let me let me ask you this: Is there any place on this planet that you have been that would ins- that would even get close to inspiring that? Sort of behavior from you is. Do you feel like you're a man without a country? Is what I'm asking, right? Oftentimes, now. Really? often, oftentimes, and I've spent some time in some black countries. You know, down in the Caribbean, teaching music and yeah. uh, getting embedded in uh, w- with the culture and all that sort of thing. There's just a there's a pride that I I envy when I'm in those parts of the world from 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 the black folks there, you know? Yeah, and, I, and maybe I, that's what I'm getting at here. I'm, I'm almost sure. envious of of Kira's love and dedication to country. Um, I've, I've said something similar about religion, mm-hmm. that, you know, if I look at the fervent people and I go, I, I want to believe in something that strongly. Yeah. I've, I've been wondering this a couple of times, if there was a place where you felt like you would be at home. We have to create that, space. And I think that's why these conversations are so useful in art spaces. We talk about uh, uh, diversity and, you know, renewing audiences and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like what we need to really dig into and understand is that we're blazing a trail in many ways. Uh, I'm I'm in the middle of some uh, consultation right now with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. And one of the questions that I ask, inspired by the conversation that we had on Triloquy, that I had on Triloquy with Daniel Bernard Romain, shout out to him, is what are the diverse spaces in our world. When do you, Scott, feel like you are in a space that is representative of the diversity that surrounds you here in the United States? Mm. You're not a churchgoer or anything, no. but you know, places of religion are one of the last places where we see some of that diversity, right? Sure. Uh, someone uh, in the uh, equity training from San Francisco Symphony mentioned sporting events. She likes football and going to football games, and there is a, a level of diversity that's represented there. So, you know, while it's not completely unprecedented, truly diverse spaces, I I think it's something that we have to create. When you ask me, hmm. you know, uh, do I feel like a man without a country? You know, where where would where would the place be? I feel like it's right here, but we have to create something new. And conversations like we have here on this podcast, they center the arts. But if we can all just, you know, again, as we repeat, have these conversations and let that reverberate to our uh, respective communities and constituencies, we can see some of that. We will be able to love country, all of us. You know, none of us will be marginalized and we can all love country as much as Kira Rudick does. Mm. I'm inspired by her, especially uh, to be saying what she is saying on women's history, uh, during Women's History Month and on International Women's Day, really empowering other women who have those feelings to do what they believe is right. There are so many refugees out of Ukraine, and as we've already mentioned, other parts of the world where they have to leave everything they know behind, including their spouses, some of their family, loved ones, you know, all, all of that sort of thing. And in light of all of that, 
um, you have folks like Kira Rudick inspiring so many of us. So huge shout out to her. Welcome to Opus 141 of Triloquy. Let's go ahead and get into it. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy Opus 141. To returning listeners, thank you so much for coming back and continuing to support this project of ours. To new listeners, if you've never tuned into the Triloquy podcast before, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and affirms the historical truth surrounding it, that the things that you approximate to that phrase, even your oral definitions of classical music, are the result of white supremacist conditioning. So here on this podcast, we take that truth and reframe the phrase classical music, the pieces of music that we approximate to that phrase, and and even the conversations surrounding that phrase classical music, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music so that we all can affirm the unique Americanness of what we have contributed to the world of classical music. You know, again, Scott, um, Kira Rudick, I'm sure there's so much Ukrainian music that she can speak to and is proud to highlight as a part of Ukrainian's classic tradition of music. Mm -hmm. We have the same thing here in the United States, but it has not ever, or it's at least rarely, has been approximated to that phrase classical music when we talk about all of the unique contributions that uh, we as Americans have offered again to the world of classical music. Anyway, this is what all of that is what this podcast is about. So <laughs> for, for more information, uh, visit Triloquy.org. You can listen to past opuses there. You can also find out how you can contribute to the Triloquy podcast. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts, a local arts institution here in St. Paul, Minnesota, ensuring that artists have a means of creating a living and a life. For more information on them at springboardforthearts.org. I would also like to send a special thank you to the Schwab School of Music down in Columbus, Georgia. Scott, their airport has three whole gates. It's a, it's really? a, it's a <laughs> small town with a lot of big talent mm. at the School of Music. Thank you to uh, uh, Dr. Patterson for having me down to the Schwab School of Music to not only uh, lead a masterclass with the bassoon studio, uh, I also have the pleasure of speaking at the school's convocation. So I'm, I'm there radicalizing the whole student body. Wow. And I also have the great opportunity uh, to speak with the Black Schwab Society down there at the Schwab School of Music. So huge shout out and thank you to everyone down at the Schwab School of Music in Columbus, Georgia. And I would, uh, to, to round out this week's announcements, I, I want to send a special shout out and thank you uh, to Anne. I don't know if Anne wants me uh, sharing her full government here on the podcast, but I'll just say thank you to Anne. Um, she is affiliated, uh, is a board member of Orchestra Iowa. And coming up, they're going to perform Joel Thompson, uh, Joel Thompson's Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, which when I told you before we turn on the microphones, you acted like that was a surprise to you. Is that something that you're surprised to hear coming out of Iowa? In that corner, sure. Yeah, yeah, Cedar uh, Cedar Rapids area, I believe. I'm not too surprised. How about um, nicely surprised? Sure, sure. Um, anyway, so uh, Anne wrote this really touching 
article that speaks to her experiences and why she believes that it's important for Orchestra Iowa to be doing this. And I'm actually named in this article. So I'm just going to I'm going to read a little bit of this before we get into the first movement. She writes here, I had first heard Garrett McQueen on the air a couple years ago. There was a deep resonance in his voice that immediately made me think he sounds black. Which, first of all, I love because you you <laughs> you have no idea. You can only imagine how many times I've met someone and they're like, oh, you look a little different than I was expecting or whatever language they'll use to say that they didn't think I was black. Anyway, mm. I appreciate it um, <laughs> seeing that. Uh, anyway, she says um, that immediately made me think he sounds black in parentheses, which I confirmed with a quick check online. <laughs> I have been listening to classical music on the radio since junior high school and in the four decades since could not have recalled having heard a black host even once. A bassoonist who had performed with symphonies throughout the United States. McQueen said it was after hearing seven last words of the unarmed that he, quote, decided to leave the stage and fight for racial equity through classical music. I admired his style of advocacy. Much to my dismay, McQueen and APM parted ways in August of 2020. She goes into that um, and she says, I found the timing to be unfortunate, uh, but she was very happy to see that uh, I was continuing as executive producer and co-host of the Triloquy podcast. She writes, there was a period when the last thing I would say nearly every evening was, Alexa, play Iowa Public Radio Classical. My habits changed with the departure of McQueen and there is a lingering sadness for me that his voice is missing from the regular lineup. That now strikes me as ironic since I did not know where I did not know there was a void in my life until I heard McQueen on air. That choked me up this morning. I wow. was I was sitting here at my desk tearing up. I'm trying not to tear up right now. And I just want to thank Ann. It's so easy in all of the work that all of us do, as I was speaking to in the very opening, we can get bogged down by all the work of it. And sometimes we can forget the impact of the work that we're doing. So I just want to send a personal thank you to Anne. I hope that uh, the performance of Joel Thompson's Seven Last Words of the Unarmed is not only uh, treated with the respect and reverence it deserves. I hope that that arts institution and arts institutions everywhere can understand that also that's not his only piece of music. Mm -hmm. It's not only about Black mm -hmm. trauma, mm -hmm. right? right. Uh, uh, impact can happen in many ways. So thank you, um, Anne. Thank you, everyone uh, down at Orchestra Iowa. And thank you again to everyone listening. Let's get into movement one. Last week, we talked about some of the arts professionals who uh, have different employment statuses based on Suddenly. <laughs> their proximity mm -hmm. to uh, Russia and Putin and all of those folks. So I just want to uh, throw up a quick natural to offer an update. We we did a lot of talking last week about Anna Netrebko. I just want to mention that uh, Valerie Gergiev has now been fired as chief conductor in Munich. I'll read just a little bit here. It says, Valerie Gergiev, the star Russian maestro and prominent supporter of President Vladimir Putin of Russia, was removed Tuesday from his post as chief conductor of the Munich Philharmonic after he refused to denounce Mr. Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I'll let y'all read the rest of that. But what I just want to ask you real quick, Scott, is again, why is this 
important? Is this sort of decision by the Munich Philharmonic consequential in some big way? Is it more value-driven? What can you offer as far as mm. why this is something important for arts institutions to stand firm in? Their uh, decisions mm. like the Munich Philharmonic made. I see one of these uh, side stories, too. It says that Gergiev also has lost Carnegie Hall engagements. Mm -hmm. So it's going back to that idea of the company you keep. Right. Um, I got out of Wells Fargo because they have money in that pipeline. Yeah. I forget the name of the pipeline now. Um, the credit union I'm at does has no money in it. So yeah. I go there. Um, the company you keep, if you stop buying things that are put out by uh, a person or a company that has values opposite yours, mm -hmm. um, you might not think that that has the impact, but what if a whole bunch of you that think that you don't have that kind of impact start doing it and they start feeling it in the pocketbook? Yeah. Then they're going to start paying attention. Yeah. You mentioned the pocketbook. I feel like for so long in arts institutions, there are decisions like these that weren't made because of the pocketbook. Again, last week we mentioned James Levine. Mm -hmm. It took decades to get him out of here and even so, I feel like there are still people who debate, try to have the art versus artist mm -hmm. conversation and, sure. and all of those sorts of things. Sure. With this considered, you know, how the Munich Philharmonic is responding to Gergiev, would you say we're in or approaching a new era of arts institutions not seeing themselves as neutral parties? Has, uh, in your 30 years of broadcast, can you think of other examples of separation from certain uh, individuals because of political or, or global issues? Are, are, mm. Is this a new thing that we're seeing? From my perspective, it sort of is. Yeah, it was always the 800-pound gorilla in the room, you mm -hmm. know, whatever political thing was going on with whatever you were playing. It just wasn't acknowledged in my time, mm -hmm. at least at the places that I've worked up to this point. Um, the other idea, you know, we talked last time about how all of the Putin sympathetic artists have been removed from the classical NPR playlists. Yeah. Does that have a big impact? I don't know, but it doesn't further it. Sure. Either. Sure. So a good example is, you know, like um, I don't pass along memes or when I was on Facebook, I didn't pass along memes that I thought was funny within my circles that might do damage elsewhere. Right. I didn't want to contribute to that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so fine. It doesn't have that big of an impact if you don't hear Valery Gergiev on classical NPR anymore, but you're not going to hear his name on our air. Sure. That's that's the idea. You know, you're not, not that it's going to dent their career, but you're just not going to hear it here. What's been the approach in your work to Russian music generally? How is the break surrounding Tchaikovsky or Rachmaninoff or Shostakovich or Prokofiev, you know, all these people, how, how is that being handled? I'm, I'm curious. For me? Yeah. I don't have any problem. Um, yeah, with Tchaikovsky, are you talking about trying to line it up now or? Yeah, I mean, because a lot, again, especially when we're talking about romantic era Western classical yeah. music, there's a, we, we lean heavy yeah. on Russia. So I, I wonder what that's looking like. Yeah, it's it's great to be able to tell the stories about the ones that worked in exile, mm. uh, about the ones who had their work completely suppressed while uh, authoritarian re regimes were in place. Sure, you know? sure. And then, you know, you, you can see that hard shift like when the regime ended yeah then all of a sudden the music changes as well 
Yeah. Uh, you know how they say saved by the bell? A lot of these composers have been saved by death because I'm thinking about uh, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who was a military general first. That's right. Before being a composer. A naval I, officer. I wonder how these conversations would be different mm. if some of these folks were still alive. We have, I talked about Prokofiev last week. We have it on paper that he stood against Stalin and the and the oppressive Russian regime all the way to the end, all the way to death. Mm. We also have the story about how not all Russian composers felt that way during the time. Right. I can't help but to think that maybe it wouldn't be, I'm not trying to put any words on none of y'all's favorite composers, but mm. I think it's of note, at least worth conversation, to think about the fact that some of these folks, some of these composers who we worship, would not have, uh, I would say they will be joining, they would be joining Gergiev and Netrebko and all of these people, if we're really being honest mm. about the history that we know and understand about these composers. You, you think Rimsky-Korsakov would have? You think, do you honestly think that a naval general would have defected and stood against Putin or or whoever when if, if he were alive today? I don't, mm. I don't know if I can say that. I don't know, there's the hunt for Red October. Mm, that's a good point. That's a good point. Well, listen, they're 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 not here. So, like I said, right. saved by death. But mm. we don't have to worry about canceling them necessarily. But thoughts and prayers no, it's, it's, to yeah, everybody. It's it's easy with with some of them. And like we were talking at dinner last week, I'm I'm not overt with my breaks. I treat all the information like just things laid out on a platter, and I just set it in front of you, and mm. let you think about it. Mm. Well. I'm not on live radio these days, so but I'm sure you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Let's let's go ahead and transition. Uh, All right. <laughs> last week we didn't hear uh, the Ukrainian national anthem, so I thought we would pull it out this week. This is actually an excerpt from it, as performed by the New York Philharmonic. An excerpt there of the Ukrainian national anthem as performed by members of the New York Philharmonic. I love, Scott, listening to the national anthems of other countries, especially the ones that dig into some of that minor tonality. I know we're playing a little bit of inside baseball here, but when you get into that minor key, it reminds me of the struggles of a people mm. and what they have gone through. I'm thinking about uh, the Israeli national anthem as we hear it in the um, in the Moldau by by Smetna. Mm. Or I'm thinking about uh, I, I don't believe Finlandia is the national anthem of Finland, but you know that piece of music, how that digs into that emotion again, exactly what you were talking about with uh, Kira Rudik. So. Mm. Um, just, uh, thoughts and prayers isn't even the right phrase. Just my, my heart goes out to everyone in Ukraine and around the world who are being impacted by imperialist violence. Some of that violence as instigated by the United States, if we're going to keep it real in other parts of the world, not necessarily sure. Ukraine, yeah. you know, but my heart goes out to all of these people. I hope that we can all find ways to engage these conversations, to learn about what's going on for the sake of future peace. We don't have peace right now. I do believe, though, that we can see it. 
if we all just put our minds together, offer some creativity into the conversation and approach it in every way we can. All right. Well, to um, lighter things, you wanted to talk a little bit about a violinist who uh, you've brought into the the Triloquy conversation before. How about you take it away? Right. What, what, she, what um, accidental is this going to give? This is going to be a sharp. Um, this is uh, an update. I think it was Opus 59 you mm-hmm. said that. I believe so, yeah. Uh, that I brought in music by Azima. She is a classically trained violinist. And uh, this update here is uh, she has been working on a new initiative called Strings by Heart, which aims to bring more diversity, access, and inclusion to the classical music world through music education programs. Now, her name is listed, you know, this is a who's who of who in all the people she's performed with. Mm -hmm. Beyonce, Yo-Yo Ma, Ziza. Is that yes, SZA? SZA. Yeah, we 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 need to we need to catch you up with with what's hip. Anyway, Kendrick yes, Lamar <laughs> and Joshua Bell. Just real quick, okay. Of all you you read those names in order, whose name was first? Beyonce. Anyway, go on, go on. Just want to you know. Beyonce was also just, in the title, <laughs> and not Izinma's name, and that was a, a part of my issue. Look, I stand. Everybody that listens to this podcast and knows me personally knows that I stand. I also understand clickbait and get and wanting people to read the article that you wrote. I I I, I call foul when it comes to not naming Izenma in the name in the uh, in the title of this article. I, I won't linger there for long because that's not what this is about. But right. I just felt like I needed to name that and that among. Artists like Yo-Yo Ma and Joshua Bell, Beyonce is named first as she should be. Go on, Scott. Reading on further, (laughs) her motivation for starting the foundation stems from her own personal experiences of music education. She says, I remember the isolation I felt as the only black person in the orchestra, at times discouraged by my teachers from pursuing my dreams. I should point out, she is a native of Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay, shout out to Nebraska. So I think that also speaks to the... The school system yeah she was a part of yeah but um so her point is uh statistics are clear that music education plays a vital role in helping children and young adults get on the path to achieve their goals improve self-esteem and more yeah i'm thinking about something that the composer Brittany j green brought up last week in the third movement the idea of setting up young people for success or failure so while i honor what Azenma is doing and uh, getting young children of color, young black kids to uh, be able to engage string playing in a way that's culturally competent. They're actually engaging it through music that is a part of their lives now or, or music that speaks to them. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. At the same time, Scott, I wonder if you what, what your thoughts are as far as what we're setting up those kids for, considering the fact that those sorts of aesthetics, that approach to instrumental playing, to string playing, isn't reaffirmed in colleges or by arts institutions. So what are we leading them to with this entry point? I don't know. I would go into it with the hope that they would create something new with it. Mm-hmm. And that that's my hope. That, that the young people would be 18 years old and create something brand new. Yep. A new aesthetic. I, do, you, do you get what I'm saying, though? That, I do. That they don't have an infrastructure to continue to to thrive under when they're done with their third grade uh, violin class with Zenma. Where else is is that approach being affirmed? I think that's something that 
we have to address when we when we create these new initiatives to get young people into the fold. We're getting them into the fold to do what? And if it doesn't exist yet, who is there to create those infrastructures? Because it's not fair, I don't think, to ask these young people or to expect of these young people the creation of their new thing when you know, we we all benefit from some sort of structure that formed us within arts ecosystems. I just think it, it has to be named that we still don't have structures for when they grow up under which they can be affirmed mm. and grow and develop even further. I have to come at it from the perspective of this will inspire more. And when we have more of it, then the structure begins to take shape mm-hmm. and you have more success stories. Um, and plus it's a positive step in this direction. So I have to, I have to support it Yeah, because what if one person takes part in a program like this and they become the one that is the, the catalyst for change? Yeah. What, if you don't take every shot you've got, you miss a potential hit mm-hmm. and this is a shot. Yeah. It's a shot for somebody. Uh, it's small. Uh, you know, you you often say, "Look, I've got an. I feel like I've got a knife six inches in my back," and you tell me you want to pull it out three inches. Yeah, Malcolm X said that. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. And you've you've repeated it to me, so that's where I got it. But all I'm saying is, so does that mean that I shouldn't try to pull it the three inches? I think that is that being naive. Well, to, well, to continue the point that Malcolm X was making. He was saying that we take that we take that knife out three inches and we consider that progress, even though there's still a knife in my back. So right. it's I progress. Get, yeah. So it's progress for whom? I guess. And again, shout out and congratulations to Azenma. This is very important work, and I do believe that uh, it's important to create equitable approaches to those entry points. Mm-hmm. I I, mm-hmm. uh, I affirm that. I also think it's unfair to grab these young people and create equitable entry points for them when mm-hmm. the path ahead is a waterfall when 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 it's a cliff under which uh, you know and and they're going to jump off of it and there's nothing there to catch them as far as being affirmed culturally uh not not even with what they're learning under Izinma I just think that conversation needs to be had and I think folks in positions of power on other links in the chain when we talk about especially the conservatories and the uh, schools of music after grade school mm-hmm. and then of course even getting into the profession it's not fair to these young people in my opinion, for them not to have a place to go that relates to that entry point. I I see where you're coming from. I understand. And I hadn't thought that far downriver toward the waterfall. I looked at it as this is an opportunity. This will be an opportunity for someone. Yeah. Even if it isn't even this first round, you know, of the 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 beginning stages you know and azenma was uh, it i'll i'll go uh, to the article uh she says here or the the writer writes black and latinx musicians are historically underrepresented in classical orchestras making up less than 4% of orchestra members that's black and um uh latinidad right. you know so that that's all of the black and brown folks here right. in in the united states so azenma answered the call this is how she's answering the call so you know I honor that. And, mm-hmm. and all the conversations I'm having surrounding this, I honor that. I wonder for you, in a similar way that uh, that uh, Kira from over in the Ukraine took up arms, I wonder what you would need to take up these sorts of proverbial arms. You think that what she's doing here is a great first step, 
Mm-hmm. What resources do you think you would need personally to say, okay, I'm going to step away from the microphone and I'm going to offer another stepping stone. They have the entry point. I need to create this. Well, what, what, what do you think you need to see or have or experience for it to be possible for you to budget. make that professional leap? The budget. The budget. You see how capitalism continues to oppress us? See, the system understands that there are certain things that we can't do without that dollar. Right. You know, and that's why that conversation, I, I believe, is coming quicker and quicker to art spaces because right. it's a conversation that we can't really ignore for for too much longer just as britney j green uh, again shout out to her uh said last week it's a combination it all has to uh equal 100 but it's a combination of uh talent hard work money and luck and i can definitely affirm those last two things the money and the luck are definitely needed so yeah. um what if what if money didn't have to be a part of the conversation. Think about how many more opportunities we would have for that many more people. Think about all the folks who would create these infrastructures, these orchestras, these schools of music, where folks who have this type of entry point can feel affirmed along the whole journey and not just say in retrospect, oh, well, I started out playing Beyonce and doing all this stuff, but there isn't really a place for me to do that. So here I am with Brahms or whatever, you know. So I, I, I believe that, you know, all of that to say, that conversation is very important, the way that money plays a role in this and the ways in which entry points mm. are used mm. to fortify the traditional structure and the traditional aesthetic of classical music. We have to have that conversation. I think that initiatives like this, if they are if if things like this are done properly and successfully, that they can be an example of something more robust being put into place. So then maybe we have the structure that mm-hmm. you're talking about. Right. Um, yeah, I, I I have to get behind something like this just because there's a possibility for somebody. And I get behind it as well because I'm rooting for everybody black. That's rooting for everybody black. I hope everyone changes that phrase to that. Mm. <laughs> I'm rooting for everybody black. That's rooting for everybody black. And is in my is among them. I have to respect it. I respect the hustle. So Yeah, and last year I did yeah. send her an email thanking her for her music and seeing if she wanted to come on the podcast. She did not respond. So here <laughs> she, let me do She didn't respond to you. And <laughs> let me do my Bernie Sanders again. I am once again asking if you will come on the podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, you'll have to interview her then. Are, are you gonna be ready? Are you gonna be prepared? I, I figured you'd want to do that. <laughs> oh, so you're giving oh, so you're 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 creating an entry point for me. Now you're creating work for me. Yeah, because that's what you need. <laughs> yeah, sure. Shout out to Azinma. A huge congrats on all of the progress and all of the work you're doing. Here's a track of hers titled Ode to Hustle for us to honor her work with. Ode to Hustle featuring Azinma on violin. I hesitate to ask my usual question because I know the usual answer, but to the point I was making, 
y'all not going to play that on the radio. So what 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 are we doing introducing kids to that sort of aesthetic and to and and to that sort of cross pollination of of aesthetics and and musical styles if it's not being reaffirmed anywhere? Not to say that it shouldn't be done mm-hmm. and that entry point shouldn't happen. I'm I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we have to think about that mm-hmm. that we that we have built the boat and put it on the river, but there's a waterfall down there where everybody's just going to fall off and and die. I don't think that conversation is being had. What would happen if the organizations that wanted to keep on doing that just came out and said, all right, we're going to be the Western canon organization. I wish they would. Radio station, blah, 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 blah. I wish they would. So does that create, what what opportunity does that create? Well, it it sheds light on what the truth is. We were talking about several weeks ago. I don't know if you remember the Society for the Preservation of Western Music. You know how they are right, very right. upfront about what they're here to do and what they're here to support. I feel like the majority of arts institutions, I'm talking about 90% of them are that, but don't want to allege to be that because they understand the racism in saying that, but they don't understand the racism in acting Mm -hmm. on those sorts of Western European norms when it comes to music. Anyway, it's a very nuanced conversation. And thank goddess that we have women like Izenma Mm. out here challenging the status quo by creating more diverse entry points for more diverse students to begin their musical journeys. And And I'm going to pray for these students because goodness gracious, the the stuff that we all have gone through in our in our journeys as Western classically trained musicians of color. Goodness gracious is uh, I I think I think there are conversations happening among the youth. And when I say that, I mean, like early college age kids conversations happening now that we didn't have and certainly that you didn't have back Mm -hmm. in 19. (laughs) Mm. Um, So I'm 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 hopeful, but. We, 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 we have to con- we have to continue we, we can't take this and separate it from the the pathway from 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 the ecosystem we have to think about what's downriver just as initiatives like azim is working on if we have more of them doing things successfully they get more robust and there's that uh structure put in place uh i think it's going to take somebody at an orchestra or radio station opera company actually stepping out and going okay we're just going to be we're going to be daring we we if you have more organizations doing that it becomes easier to do it the company you keep and and no one wants to be first right right <laughs> so now we were talking last week yes. look, look at the uh look at the met yeah you know when they and it took them what five days to cut ties with Natrebko. yeah okay and we said now that's it they're not off the hook for everything up to that right this is like okay, one good decision. Now mm-hmm. let's see what you do. Yeah, I think that's what it's going to take, and that's a part of activism is being that example mm. for other people. So, mm. speaking of speaking of you know uh, making sure that the pathway is uh, is equitable, you know, so many kids come in and have to dampen their own experience, maybe even whiten their own experience or their own perspectives for the sake of the art form. Well, there's a, a musical. I, I saved this article a few weeks ago. I decided to go ahead and bring it in. There's a musical that explores that concept in a really interesting theoretical way. I'm going to give this a sharp for being provocative. This is coming from National Public Radio NPR. The title, A Machine Turns Black People White <laughs> mm-hmm. in the musical Black No More. Goodness gracious. 
<laughs> I can't even. Oh. Well, I mean, what, uh, before I read anything, what's your reaction to that? Is and I'll go ahead and tell you, is based on a book. Mm-hmm. It's based on an Afro uh, futurist book. What are your ideas about that as a concept, a machine that will turn black folks white? Right around. I mean, uh, because the machine I'm thinking about is the, the classical music industrial complex. Anyway. Oh, right around ahead. to right around 2003, I was in a play at the Shelter Belt Theater that was um, part of our Halloween vignettes show. So five to seven minute sketches, mm-hmm. and in one of them. This man is brought home from the bar by four women. Okay. And the the scene was called Sex Change. And they had this device. They were going to put him in there. And it if you're a man, it turns you into a woman. If you're a woman, it turns you into a man. Mm-hmm. So they put him in there and he comes out as a woman. Go, oh, my God. What are you? Oh, no. This this is crazy. We have to go. We'll, let, let us check it out and see if it's actually working. And then they go in and turn into men. Okay. And they come out and they're like, what? What? We thought we thought you wanted to come back to our place and, and fool around. What? Oh, and, and now all of a sudden he's like, oh, no, wait a minute. Right. Wait right a minute. Now, this yeah, you see? You see? Anyway, yeah. uh, let me read here. A new musical. Is that what you were talking about? Yep. A new musical inspired by a satirical Afrofuturist novel called Black No More opens off-Broadway Tuesday, this was last month, presented by The New Group. Set during the Depression, both the book and the musical examine race in America with an outrageous plot device. An inventor comes up with a machine that turns black people white. The music was written by uh, Tariq Trotter, who's known by many as Black Thought. It says here, Trotter wrote the lyrics and music of the uh, much of the music, which ranges from hip-hop to R&B to jazz to folk. Again, a, a lots of uh, American classical portrayed here and, and celebrated on stage. Um, it goes on to say he plays Dr. Junius Crookman, inventor of the Black No More machine, which will turn any black person white for $50. Trotter says the doctor believes that this Black No More device is the solution to race relations in America. I think the line is to solve the American race problem as we know it. But yeah, you know, I don't think a solution is ever reached. I so- thought you were going to say the doctor felt the fee was low. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because I guess that's, you know, what your experience is worth, $50. You know, reparations is much more than that. Okay, so let's, mm. <laughs> I'm being problematic today. But. <laughs> Based on the first paragraph, the first few sentences of the else. first paragraph that you read, yeah. would you go see it based on those first few lines? I I would definitely. And, you know, like I said, this was in February. This was last month. But I think that's something very provocative and actually speaks to something that exists in the world, I find this provocative because so many infrastructures and institutions, most certainly Western classical music, want black folks to do just that, mm. show up to their spaces white. Now, of course, not with white skin, but with a perspective and with sensibilities that center white people. Again, we think about neutrality a lot in mm-hmm. art spaces, but neutrality, a default, all of those things default. as being white is the very definition of white supremacy. So I think this is a provocative idea. Uh, I need to read the book. I think this musical is provocative in that it, in a, uh, in an outlandish way, explores that very idea, what people are dealing with, what black folks, what mm. folks of color are dealing with in the industry today. Anything that puts you in the opposite shoes, mm-hmm. right, is going to have um, sort of an eye-opening effect, right? And when you take something that's the default, 
like the presumed sexuality of somebody just based on appearance or values based on the skin color or, or whatever, and you flip the script, I don't know. I think it could be effective. I was just curious if in the first few lines that you read, if that was going to raise your eyebrows enough to be problematic enough to keep you away from it. Well, it's and it definitely will be one thing if we were talking about white leads in a play about black folks being turned white. I mean, that's that would be way out here. But I think, you know, the the producers and and the original author was smart enough to frame this in a way for us to actually be able to have the conversation. Look, I'll read again. Well, I won't read, but one of the ideas behind the play is that this doctor who has created this machine believes that this is the way to solve the world's problems. You see, I feel like this is what arts institutions want out of people of color and out of our experiences. I feel like they want us to not bring our full selves because, oh, that because our audience or because of our bottom line or our board of directors, or, you know, whatever excuse you want to fill in. They believe that all of these problems that they see in DEI would be solved if we wouldn't go there. But at the end of the day, there's so many things that racism fuels that wouldn't go away with this whitening of society mm. as it is in this play and even uh, the way we think about music in our art spaces. I'm thinking about um, the patriarchy, misogyny, you know, I'm thinking about homophobia. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about capitalism as as we have already mentioned. All of these things work in tandem with racism. So I think I, I want to see this because I want to mm. see how that conversation is addressed. And if it is addressed in this, uh, in, in this work of art. Um, How go ahead. poorly would you have to think of yourself to go and say, yeah, I'll, I'll change to a different race? Okay, but let me, let me swap what you have just said. How deep and how violent is the conditioning, the yeah. environment for a person to think of themselves in that way? Yeah. See, I feel like we can't put the onus. Even I haven't even seen the play, but I feel like you can't put the onus on these people who might want to pay their little $50 because there's an environment that breeds that thinking, yeah. that, that that breeds that desire out of a person. Yeah. Um, let me just go ahead and ask you, what about a white normal machine? Are you going to go sit in the chair and turn black? <laughs> I wish y'all could see Scott's face. <laughs> Go ahead. I never do this to you. <laughs> never. All right. Well, that's your answer uh, from Scott. So to <laughs> go, oh, unless you. I just said I. I did not. <laughs> I. I don't. I don't. No, I wouldn't. And is there any guarantee that my life would improve? If I if I jumped into the machine, am I am I jumping into the machine so I can get into? Uh, is are we flipping the script that the black society now is the one that uh, has supremacy? There are so many points. You know, there, there's so much here to unpack, more than we have time for today. But even you're asking that question. You know, it reminds me of what I want to say to so many people of color is like, do you really think your life is going to be better if you dedicate yourself to a Western thinking around classical music, if you dedicate your life to white supremacist infrastructures? I feel like that's the mode of thinking, the, the line of thinking that this play, this musical inspires. At least it inspires me. I'm going to see if it's streaming somewhere. Mm. I need to go uh, buy this book because 
these are the conversations, Scott. You see how <laughs> you see how uncomfortable it can get very mm-hmm. quickly when mm-hmm. we have these sorts of conversations. Thank goodness for artists, for creators who dig into that discomfort and to those sort of gritty conversations and create things for us to enjoy musically. There's a quote from an old film that goes, be leery of business opportunities that require a change of wardrobe. Mm-hmm. I would be even more leery of something that required me to change my skin tone. Okay, so you said change of wardrobe. What did these orchestras want all these musicians to wear? What, they're, they're dressed uh, black and white? Okay, so so th- that is something that folks have, just tucks and tails. Do you have tucks and tails at home? To go to the concert, to go to a concert? No, I, I don't have it. Okay, so that means anything. to enter that infrastructure as a musician, you would have to change something about your wardrobe, correct? And I so think be more, leery. So what did you say? Be leery of what was the quote? Business opportunities that require a change of wardrobe. There it is. But more broadly, changing yourself. I think it's about altering yourself to fit into something else for some perceived reward. If any of y'all have read this book or have seen this article, <laughs> please reach out because. It, it, it's a lot. It sounds like a lot. So to transition out of this first movement to get us into the second movement, we're going to hear from the man who wrote all this music and this very provocative sounding musical based on this very provocative book. Again, Tariq Trotter, who's known by many others as Black Thought. This is a tune of his called Thought versus Everybody. Let's take a listen to get us into the second movement. I don't think you heard. The most powerful black man in the world. Hey, y'all. They ask why I seem so solemn On a throne between three stone columns You know the name, fucking up the game, no condoms Everybody goddamn first world problem The truth is inconvenient as non-believers Fearing DACA dreamers instead of FEMA Bentley Benz or a Beamer, Fiji or Aquafina We fuck around and be the next Iwo Jima The tides rising at the same time like they synchronize For making art, for making love, for making highs The home is where the hatred lies, they taking lives But everybody just so saved and sanctified we might, Scott, we might have to return. We, we might have to return to this conversation because it's so much deeper than what we're really getting into today. I mean, there, there are so many cognitive things that you can connect with that sort of plot. So many um, real world professional aspects of the conversation. Again, as we were talking about with the clothes you wear, who you show up into art spaces in. Um, culturally and uh, sensibly when it comes to what you consider excellent music, the greatest music, and Mm -hmm. all of these phrases that we use in in art spaces, we may have to return to it. But for now, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are taking a piece of music that we have been spending some time with this week. And uh, instead of repeating it fully, we take the second ending and talk a little bit about why we were vibing with it so much all week. How about you go first? Who you got this week? I wanted to shine the light on composer Julia Wolf, mm. and in particular, a recording that was put out with the Bang on a Can ensemble called Field Recordings. Um, while I was working on my house, I had music going in the background, and it was obviously pulling some things from my history. Mm-hmm. And that man playing the one-note flute um, and humming with it, it's some sort of um, uh, of a, an, an African technique. Yeah. And that came through. And then a couple randoms down, Julia Wolf's piece called Reeling comes up. Do you know the the piece? I don't. Okay, so part of this field recordings thing with Bang on a Can, 
Uh, it says it's rooted in the mystery of experimentation as it is in collaborative spirit. In the words of composer David Lang, it's kind of a ghost story. We ask composers from different parts of the music world to find a recording of something that already exists, a voice, a sound, a faded scrap of melody, and write a new piece around it. So I was thinking- So it sounds of, like sampling to me. Sure. Or if you want to go back to like what uh, Bela Bartok did, you know, recording Roma music from sure. the Hungarian countryside, that sort sure. of thing, and threaded it in, into uh, a new composition. And reeling, Julia said that this piece starts off with a French-Canadian singer, and it's and it's just sort of nonsense words, you know, just said we let it, you know, this sort of thing. And it's so catchy the way that it started off that it actually made me sit up and you know kind of turn around and look at the speaker a little bit. And I love this ensemble, the way that they they start snapping fingers together and they get it in their body. So I love that they can keep this together. And then the clarinetist comes in ever so gently, like a breath, like slowly bringing in the volume. So they start handing it around, right? And that cello, that looks like Darth Vader's cello. That's one of those carbon jobs, right? Yeah, I like this. This is... You know what this I really, you know I what like I love that. about the sample though? What's that? They left that breath in. You know, I felt myself breathing along with the I vocalist. I mean, is that not a part of the performance? A vocalist has to breathe, right? So that's a part of it. Right. I just, I just love how it wasn't disguised or yeah. minimized in any way. The name Julia Wolf, was that a new name for you? I'm, I'm familiar with yeah, some of her work. I, yeah. I had heard her name here and there, but I couldn't give you a title. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I, I just know the name. Well, let, let's hear a little bit of this outro. Shout out to Reeling by Julia Wolf and everyone over at Bang on a Can. Bang on a Can, there's some heroes as well, because a lot of the music they put out is is really stretching what these, again, challenging these conceptions of classical music. Really important work being done by Bang on a Can. Let's, let's check out the uh, final bits of this performance of Reeling by Julia Wolf. And I'm just now understanding the title reeling as in reels of right. tape and that sort of thing. Very cool. Oh, I like, I like, I like that. Well, That's also, cool. also, you know, uh, in typically in Irish music, they have reels, you know, jigs sure. and reels yeah. and things like that. So perhaps that's in there too. Yeah. Wow. 
Julia Wolf, ladies and gentlemen. Really, really great stuff. I can't wait to revisit that myself. All right. Well, for me this week, Scott, I was, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of traveling and going here and there. So I've been trying to catch up on all of uh, my news and my podcasts and things. And for Women's History Month, I heard a show, and I'm sorry that I'm not remembering who this was, but I heard a show, um, and there were some folks honoring the work of Martha Wash. Now, yes. when I say that name, you know exactly who I'm talking about, but you have to admit that a lot of folks don't, even though they know her sound, <laughs> they have heard music with her with her voice on it, but they don't know her name. As a matter of fact, let's go ahead and, um, and remind people of the most famous performance of Martha Wash. <laughs> How many times have you done that in your DJ days? I mean, would, would that go? Would that every, get the people moving? Every show. Mm-hmm. Every dance. So the woman singing there is Martha Wash, mm-hmm. and she's not featured in the music video. No. She's not, and she wasn't even credited from what I was reading today. Didn't even get, doesn't get royal, uh, royalties or residuals from that performance. Why uh, do you think? Why do you think that is, Scott? Why? Why, why do you think that Martha Wash was sidelined, marginalized, put in the background in that way? I'll tell you what she said in an interview that I saw. Uh, she said it was because she was heavy, and when she was with the Weather Girls, I mean, they put out some disco anthems. Yeah, and I ran across her when they used her voice in "Everybody, Everybody" by Black Box which is the song that I use to teach everybody the electric slide. You won't belong to me, I let you down. I walk around and see your night skyline. I feel the light, but you don't want to stay. So lonely now, just let me off the You, not you teaching people the electric slide. What? <laughs> Come on. Anyway, this you is this, this is my second movie. Anyway, so all of that to say, shout out to Martha <laughs> Wash. So also uh, CNC Music Factory. Everybody dance now. All of that to say. Her voice is one that people know and might not know her name. So I've wanted to go back and see if there were some Martha Wash originals, some some more music, some more contemporary mm. music that I need to check out that showcases her voice and showcases her name connected to the voice. So uh, she came out with an album uh, a few years back called Something Good. That's the title of the album. And I've been listening to the different tracks on the album and the tune that resonated with me the most was called I'm Not Coming Down. It it seems like one of those anthems that, from my perspective, says, look, I know that y'all were sidelining and marginalizing me for all these years. Well, you know what? I'm still here. My shine, my my star is shining. I'm I'm up and I'm not coming down. So I really appreciated mm. being able to not only remind myself of her very important legacy, but to listen to some of her new music, some of her new compositions. So here's a little bit of I'm Not Coming Down featuring Martha Wash. Some days I'd find 
every breath Sometimes I'd shake with every step I knew I had all I could take I was about to quite the disco vibe, right? But, no. But very inspirational, very American classical, if I may. We had the guitar, we had the piano and all of, and all of that stuff. Brilliant music. I was so happy to find, for, well, first of all, again, to hear someone still saying her name and then B, to, to find this music. This album came out back in 2013, so almost a decade ago, mm. but much more contemporary than some of the other disco and dance music that uh, made her voice famous, if not her name. So women's history. Martha Wash is one of those names that we need to be saying, not only in March, of course, but year-round, but especially in March, as we remember the contributions that many women have uh, have put out into the, the field of American classical music. Shout out to Martha Wash. We honor you. It sounded to me like um, the music for a montage in a film, sure, or maybe from a, or maybe from a TV series. Sure, sure, but but you have to admit that we all have those TV shows or series that we watch where the montage is where we get into that, our feelings. Exactly, that's when we cry. It's during the montage. That's right. You know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, we should bring that back. Let's bring the montage back. Bring the montage back. Yeah, I mean, even let's 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 have the Martha Wash documentary. That montage <laughs> is going to be something. Yeah. And then we already have the music to go with it. So anyway, again, shout out to Martha Wash. Uh, we're transitioning here into the third movement. This week's guest is Kamala Sankaram. So coming up uh, next week, yeah, next week, Scott, uh, the Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center is presenting Written in Stone, a series of uh, new operas. One of the operas is written by Carlos Simon, so yeah. a member of the uh, Triloquy family there. Um, and it's a, a set of operas that sort of challenge the idea of monuments, if not challenge the idea of centers the conversation of what should be written in stone. We are an evolving, ever-changing people with nuance and different sensibilities and all that sort of thing. So should anything really be written in stone? Anyway, one of the operas, uh, Rise, is actually composed uh, by music composed by Kamala Sankaram. So uh, she comes to talk a little bit about this upcoming opera, uh, the idea of things written in stone. And we even get a little bit into uh, a little Indian music. I, forget, I, I think the microphones were cut off uh, when we started talking about the vena specifically, but mm. she actually said that she uh, was supposed to be a vena player as a kid, but mm. the uh, sitar was a little bit uh, more known to folks here in the United States. She she grew up over in California. That was a little bit more known. So mm. that's more of the direction she went in. But all sorts of cross-pollination and a really great conversation here. Where we start, uh, I basically just revisit one of the conversations, one of the questions we always explore here, redefining classical music. What is classical music? Um, what are your ideas around that phrase? Uh, a question I asked uh, Kamala, considering 
her background and her knowledge of classical musics around the world. So uh, to get us into the conversation, I'm going to um, play a track uh, that features her band. They're called Bombay Ricky. Um, and this tune is called Electric by Javi. So music here by Bombay Ricky featuring Kamala Sankaram to get me into my conversation with Kamala. Hope y'all enjoy. You My parents divorced when I was a small kid. And so I, most of my experience with musical training up until I was a teenager was really around learning to play the piano and then, you know, choral music. And so my, my exposure to Indian music was in the times that I spent with my dad on, on those like supervised visit, not supervised visit. That's the wrong term of (laughs) the, uh, the days that he had, that he had me and my sisters. Um, So I, I, I never thought of the fact that India had this classical music tradition until I went to India to visit my family when I was a little bit older. And my grandfather was very, very pointed about the fact that I didn't know anything about it. And so he was the one who encouraged me to, to learn more. He and he gave me a sitar and sent me back <laughs> to the U.S. with the sitar with, with sort of the mandate to go learn it and uh-huh. learn more about what that tradition was. Um, and that was sort of the opening up around it because, you know, I think coming into it as somebody slightly older, whereas typically when you're studying Indian classical music, you are starting when you're a small kid, like I did with the piano. Mm-hmm. And so I think like I never questioned the the piano and the the historical linearity of Mozart, Beethoven, so on. Um, I think that you don't think about it the same way when you just grow up with it. So so having been introduced to it later on, it made me curious. And that's when I started to learn, well, actually, this has existed since the 14th century. So, right. <laughs> you know, so it's this whole other parallel uh, tradition that is evolving and is deep and rich and 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 it's funny that that the name classical music has just come to mean the one thing isn't it because mm-hmm. it's not just in india also there are these really rich traditions in africa also like if you think about the you know the griot tradition and exactly. and all of that it's it's like it's 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 pretty amazing how many the of these parallel uh ways of thinking about music kind of developed yeah yeah absolutely i wonder how you weigh uh, your Western classical training against the uh, renewed uh, Indian classical training that you were engaging. It it sounds like when it comes to the Western training, uh, there wasn't a ton of uh, family interest. I understand that public school just happened to have a program and that's how you were introduced to it all. Yeah, so that's part of it. Um, my my grandma was a pianist and an organist, and so my mom's side of the family, there are quite a few people who are musicians of different, uh, I guess, degrees is not the right word, but but of different levels of. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
like uh, professionalism. No, that's not the right word either. <laughs> there are people who are professional musicians and there are people, everybody sort of played something or sang something on my mom's side of the family. But um, other than taking piano lessons, it wasn't really meant to be something that was a professional career. And I think that's partially because my grandma was a piano teacher and knew how difficult it could be to be a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, but where I grew up, you know, at that time, there was still a public music education program that school district no longer has the music program anymore. It's been cut. Um, but a lot of my exposure to uh, things outside of what I was hearing at home came directly through that program. So it was very connected to the fact that it it is contained in the expectation of the, the everyday, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yep. I, I think often about the fact that if I happen to be a seventh grader in 2020 instead of 19, whatever, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe I wouldn't be here today. You know, the, those those public school um, entry points to this art form are so pivotal. Do you think um, as an industry, we're really thinking about the lasting impact that COVID has had? I feel like in 20 years, there maybe maybe it's a stretch to say there will be fewer musicians, but I I wouldn't be there, so that has to be the case to some extent. Oh yeah, no, I I think I think that there's a lost generation that we are not we are not going to see the impact of this for a while, and not just with kids who are not being able to play in elementary school or middle school or high school, but even college level, mm-hmm. there are so many students who I think have just sort of given up, which is really heartbreaking because, yeah. you know, I feel like we were just starting to get to a place where we were achieving a little more diversity right. <laughs> and, and what, you know, and the, the impact of the pandemic is in so many other things is that it really is this sort of class hierarchy that decides who gets to continue and who doesn't. And, you know, if you, does it seem worth it to pursue music if it's remote and you're still having to work these jobs to do it? And then you, you know, you're at home and you don't have space to practice and you don't have access to a piano. There are all of these things that, that, that come up and, you know, and that really became apparent. And I think are, are driving, some of of the the disappearances of of people from the industry yeah yeah and and i don't i don't want to you know we we definitely have to talk about rise and and all of (laughs) those things i don't want to spend too much time here but you're you're really unlocking some some things in my mind it's it's one thing to try to uh, rope a youngster into the fold of of Western classical music, but then for many of us, there was just a genuine interest. What what do you cite as a a turning point uh, for you uh, from oh, music in school is interesting to wow, I actually want to dedicate my life to this. You know, it's funny uh, to try and think of when that what the what the pivotal thing was and i think it must have been the experience of singing in choir Mm. um in uh was it and maybe even in in middle school i had a choir teacher named mr fernat who just was this really interesting person and like i never met anyone like him before and um 
I don't know. He just had a way of making us embody the music and really think about the text. And that has stayed with me. And that, you know, that's sort of become the, the, my, my approach to it in general is how is it embodied and how is the text driving things mm. forward? And I think that if it weren't for him, then I probably wouldn't be where I am now. Um, and then I also, I had a, a teacher in high school, uh, Mrs. Beck, who she encouraged me to do some arrangements for our our show choir. And, and you know, this was Southern California, so it was a show choir. And we had big hair and sequence and all of that. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. very familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I arranged a couple of things for the show choir. And that also, I think, was, it made me realize that I've could do it and that I liked doing it. Um, and so it was that early encouragement from those two people that I think was really, really important. Yeah, you you mentioned uh, the significance of text. When most people, when the uninitiated think of opera, they think of people singing on stage in, in different languages. Let's say we flip the switch here in the United States and put every opera into the English language. Is that is is the problem solved at that point? Is it is a is it text or is it the actual aesthetic that can seem inaccessible to people from your perspective? What what are your ideas on that? Oh gosh, I think there's so much, you know, because because of the way that opera came to America and the way that it has been uh, historically marketed in America, I feel like there's a real perception of it as something that is out of reach to the fact that most people haven't actually heard someone singing classically in the same room as them before, but everyone will do fake opera voice if you oh, yeah. ask them. <laughs> yes. And, and it's so funny because I, I, I like to tell this story. Um, I was in a, a cab in San Francisco. I was there to go to the Opera America concert conference and I was taking a taxi from the airport to the conference hotel and the taxi driver asked me why I was there and I said I'm here for an opera conference and he said oh I hate opera and I said oh really <laughs> which which operas have you seen and he said none <laughs> like how do you know you hate opera he's like I just do I know and I think that's the problem is mm -hmm. that um, until you change the way that people think about it at all you're not going to even get them to to listen to a text in italian or english or think about how the people are singing because because you have to get them to listen first mm -hmm. um and i think that we haven't done historically we haven't done such a great job of, of showing why why this is still relevant why should i listen to this why should i care and it's one thing to get folks to fall in love with the magic flute or Don Giovanni, but uh, new music, as we call it, can be as uh, inaccessible to, to certain audiences. Does uh, it do the challenges multiply at that intersection of opera and new music in from from your perspective and your experience? I think it's kind of they're they're like a, a a venn diagram that they intersect in some ways and not in other ways mm -hmm. and so people that would come and see something that has 
like like taking up serpents my my last opera washington national opera has honky tonk in it like the bob wales style honky tonk in yeah, it yeah. and i i know that that's not everybody's cup of tea but there are people who hear that and recognize it and it's a way in you know and similarly like i think about um uh daniel bernard remains piece we shall not be moved and mm -hmm. how that had so many hip-hop elements in it and again it's like some people don't resonate with that but that audience looked different than most audiences i've been in for opera so that was really exciting and i think you know we get so caught up in thinking about how can we get everybody to like everything mm -hmm. and that's not really the point the point is how do you get them invested in this style of art in the first place um, and I like to I like to think about, you know, prestige television, <laughs> which there's there's you know, you have your HBO and then you have uh, all of the, the Disney stuff mm -hmm. and you have all of your your like basic cable stuff. And those shows are all very different and they have their own audiences and everybody's fine with that. But then when it comes to something like opera, you know, it, it has to be everybody has to it, the this, what one audience likes has to be the same as what other audience likes and i don't i don't think that's true I, mm -hmm. and i know that a lot of it has to it comes down to funding and how everyone is struggling with with budgeting and how do you pay for things that are so expensive if they're not going to recoup what you paid out um but i think that there are multiple levels of creating these pieces that's that's that are possible and, it, and we're starting to see that right like uh chamber operas mm -hmm. in addition to the giant opera with the orchestra and the full chorus and now even digital pieces that are being made that are specifically meant to be online yeah yeah th that that's what i think is one of the silver linings we can pull out of this time is that i can enjoy opera in my pajamas. I don't have to go get dressed up or go anywhere. So, you know, there <laughs> there are things to celebrate with those evolutions. So you have uh, an opera coming up, the premiere of an opera with the Washington National Theater. And the general theme across uh, the, the all of these world premieres uh, is the idea of monuments. So just generally speaking, I wonder what uh, your response is to a critique of physical monuments. There are a lot of people who believe that statues are something of the past nothing should be written in stone in that way what are your ideas on that i think it's really kind of brave <laughs> the <laughs> kennedy center to do this for their anniversary of the fact that they are a monument it's just mm -hmm. a question um but i think we need to question you know because the 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 thing about monuments is that they are emblematic of the way that we as a culture see ourselves and the story we are telling about ourselves. And often what that means is the story gets co-opted by the people who happen to be in power. And the, the outcome of that is that the people who are in power stay in power because that's the story is that right. this is the, these are the people who know, these are the people who lead, these are our heroes. This is what you must look like. This is what you must do. And that points us in a particular direction. So I, I do think it's important to question uh, what our monuments and our stories are. But that being said, I do think it's also important to have those stories. And what is exciting about where we are now is that that history and this idea of the straightforward line is is being questioned. And we're seeing, you know, the 
emphasis being placed more on people who were also there and also important, but were not part of the the storytelling at the time. And, and mm-hmm. so we're left out. And I think that that's part of what all of these pieces are doing in their own way is questioning, you know, what is, what does it mean to tell the story of our culture through art and through these statues? And what does it mean to say this is something that is solid and cannot be altered when there is more fluidity and complexity and ambiguity always at all, all points in, in that line it's not a straight line yeah yeah the these things these solid things that cannot and should never be changed of course reminds us all of western classical music at least in the way that we've we've been treating it how does uh your new opera how does rise uh specifically engage that conversation i think that um am holmes the librettist has done something very smart uh, because the, the monument that we are dealing with is the portrait monument Um, which is a monument to suffragettes. It was unveiled in 1921, and it has three women on it who are Lucretia Mott, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and of course, Susan B. Anthony. And it's a very strange looking sculpture. It's like half of each of these women coming out of a giant block of marble. And then there's sort of an unfinished blob of marble in the back of the statue. Mm -hmm. And the story of it is that It was unveiled and then immediately sent down into what's called the crypt, which is sort of the basement of the Capitol building. And it just sort of sat there in a corner for 75 years before a group of women senators raised enough money to bring it back up to the rotunda, which is where it is now. So, you know, there's one version of an opera which just tells the story of that monument and, you know, the ladies who brought it back and, and yay, everything's hunky-dory, but that is not what AM did. And mm-hmm. I think that that's why this piece has more resonance is because she looked at that and she said, well, you know, what about the, the Black suffragettes? None of them are there. We don't see any representation of what women and women's rights are now or who is fighting or or any of that and so she has the monument as sort of a jumping off point for this Mm -hmm. for a larger discussion about what it means to have a monument but also about what is your connection if you don't see yourself represented in the story that the country is telling what do you do about that yeah. So the libretto focuses around a uh, Latina Girl Scout and her trip to the Capitol building. She gets separated from her Girl Scout troop and meets a black Capitol police officer and the ghost of Adelaide Johnson, who was the sculptor of the monument itself. And they kind of have a conversation. And that's that's the piece. It's so it's I think it's a way of, of dealing with the monument without making it specifically about the monument and mm-hmm. that. I think is the the better way to engage with it. A lot of people through this piece of music will learn uh, a about the existence of this monument. I, I didn't know that it was a thing before I, I took on this project. But something that I've really been uh, wrestling with in my mind, just thinking a lot about, is uh, the way that the legacy of women's rights has mm-hmm. centered Susan B. Anthony mm-hmm. in a in a really interesting way. I even remember the uh, the silver dollar that we used to get in school for making straight A's or or whatever. Um, over time, as as you've mentioned, we've recontextualized the way we think. 
about women's rights from a historical perspective to ask the question, where are the women of color? I wonder how you've seen the conversation of women's rights from that historical narrative evolve um, over the years, if at all, away Susan B. Anthony, uh, away from Susan B. Anthony, uh, offering more depth to her. What, what, what's been your experience with that? I think that the problem that we always face in dealing with the story that we're telling is that we want to have a hero, right? And we want to mm. have the one person that leads the way through everything. So we end up with somebody like uh, Susan B. Anthony and we, you know, we forget everybody else. And so I think what's been interesting is um while there has been a lot of um, talking about including Sojourner Truth, and and I and you see this in New York actually that the there was a sculpture that went up in Central Park that originally was supposed to it was just Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton I think, and then there was a whole petition to include Sojourner Truth also, and she finally got added to the statue before it was put up in the park. Um, so I think there's a push there, but I also think it's interesting that I've seen more writing about other uh, women of color involved in the movement in the United States. Um, and so there's, I, I'm hopeful that there's something about the fact that we're already questioned the linearity of the narrative and mm -hmm. the need for a hero in the narrative that's allowing more of these women's stories to be included. Um, yeah, so, so I'm hopeful about, about the conversations because at least we're open to nuance and saying, well, you know, Susan B. Anthony had a lot of problems, sure. right? And we, we have to talk about that also. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's just sort of the, again, going back to classical music is this, this genius problem that we have, mm -hmm. right. That we, we have to, we have a tendency to want to say that there are these great men throughout history and they're the ones who are the innovators and they stand alone and they don't have any help when the truth is more complex than that and more nuanced. There's always other people in the background working. And the question is just, um, do we, do we recognize them or not? You know, yeah. how, how full, how, how rich, how varied do we want our storytelling to be? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One thing that we haven't mentioned is that in this portrait monument, you know, we, we have those uh, three busts and then there's a sort of blank spot. There's there's a, a spot where obviously something could be included there, but has yet to be. And also you mentioned the name Sojourner Truth. There was a, a big push to include her in, in that monument. And unfortunately, that failed. I wonder how uh, you balance that unfortunate bit of history with the idea, again, of challenging writing things in stone is it better that it's left blank or or should we uh include sojourner truth or the face of another uh, woman of color in this monument i think that there's always space to to rewrite i mean i i know part of the issue it was around i think the fact that there were people who didn't think there was enough material left in the marble to create the bust so I, that's the other part of it, right, is you want to honor and respect, but you don't want to do it in a way that leaves the person second, 
sort of like a second fiddle. Like I mm-hmm. wouldn't want to see Sojourner Truth added to the statue, but like one third the size. Exactly. Else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that would be uh, un- unfortunate. Wow. What do you hope that um, audiences sort of uh, take away on the broadest scope when they see Rise? Again, we started talking about accessibility to opera and affirming its uh, relevance uh, in, in, in today's society. Is there a message concerning opera as a genre that you hope folks take away from this? Yes. I mean, I think one of the things that's really powerful about seeing opera in person is you hear the voices and how they work in a room. So when you're in a large theater and there's like a big orchestra, the fact that these women are singing and you can hear them, right? And that they hit these these notes that are that are powerful and that are sometimes very high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's it's almost a superhuman feat. And this piece, Rise, doesn't have any male singers in it. So it's it's all a cast of all women. And um, I, it passes the Bechdel test. <laughs> and so I, I hope that people see it and come away, one, with just the sense of these, these singers' musicality and um, real talent, but that also embedded in it is a lot of... Um, sort of fodder for 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 thought and for conversation right Mm -hmm. this this question um who who is written in stone and and what do you do if you don't see yourself in the story right Mm -hmm. that that it's it's about nuance and about like there there is no hard and fast answer to the question of who should be written in stone, right? Or who do we celebrate? It's it's sort of like um, it tells us who we are as a people, and I think that that's that's the, the the guiding thing is who do we want to be as a people, and who how do we want to point ourselves towards the future? And a lot of that is bound up in the stories that we tell, also. Technically uh, speaking, when it comes to writing the music uh, for this, was it a challenge or, or was it easier to center on women's voices? What was what was that like not using the bass clef staff at all? I mean, was was that a thing? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's interesting because um, the the women's writing because they're they're so treble heavy. You know, mm-hmm. I have a lot of low brass that I use. Oh wow, okay um to sort of counterbalance it and um i it was fun because i i got to write a five part chorale for them um and you don't always get to do that in in opera um and i i also had a lot of fun thinking about sort of how to musicalize this journey of our young girl scout from when she she enters the piece um she's sort of out of her element and mm-hmm. it's very chaotic it's the capital and then by the end she sort of found her way in and so i decided to start with uh, music that's inspired by uh serialism and also military band so it's sort of this nice. atonal march but then by the end the the cell of the the row the melody that comes out of the row is transformed into something that is in a more open scale um 
So there's a lot of like musical nerdery happening also. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, you know, folks like us have to be engaged as audience members as well. So, you know, a little meat for proverbial meat for, for, for us to chew on. Um, with all of these things in mind, do you still see a role for the so-called traditional opera? Do you still see a role for Rossini and all of these folks in the ecosystem, considering the conversations that you're able to engage with new opera? I think so. Um, you know, because there is something about universal story that can be found in, in, in these older operas, you know, people still fall in love. They still argue with each other. They still have heartbreak. I think that, um, where the difficulty comes is that we often forget about the humanness of mm -hmm. these older pieces. And we focus on doing them correctly, quote unquote, um, so that they become sort of calcified and they're not allowed to live and breathe and resonate with the modern audiences. And mm -hmm. I know that, you know, a lot of contemporary stagings try to solve this by updating where they take place, like putting them in Las Vegas or whatever, right. but that's not necessarily getting at what the heart of the the piece is like if you can make the audience feel like, oh, this is a woman who is in love and has been betrayed and that's why she's getting stabby. I think, you know, <laughs> that's a better way in than, um, you know, they're in Las Vegas. So yeah. I think there's room for that. I think, but, but I also think that we can't cover over the, the fact that these are coming from different places in time mm -hmm. and what, was acceptable at that point in time. The norms are not acceptable now, you know, and we can't just say, well, you know, the audience will figure it out. No, I think we have to put it in context and have conversation and be really clear, you know, what is it that's still of value about this piece? Why do we want to do this piece? And if we can say, you know, this is what I love about this piece. This is why I want to do it, even while acknowledging that there are these other problematic elements, then I think it will be easier to invite people in than if I just say, this is a great piece. You should like it. You, if you don't like it, you don't know anything. And that that's sort of how we've, we've been about it. Because mm -hmm. if you don't like Mozart, then there must be something wrong with you. I, I yeah, I don't I don't think that's helping anybody. <laughs> so to that point, uh, what's your advice to the folks who are going to get in the back of a cab or an Uber or whatever, and have to deal with a driver like you have <laughs> who doesn't like opera? What's your advice to the to those people to actually get somewhere in the conversation? Well, I asked him, I said, what kind of music do you like? Mm. And he said, hip hop. And I said, well, you know, there's this piece called We Shall Not Be Moved that has hip hop in it. You should listen to that. And I don't know if he ever did, but I know that if he did, he would find something in there to resonate with. And I think that's that's the other wonderful thing about the pieces that are being written now is because they draw on popular music, which let's be honest, you know, Mozart did that too. Right. We just, you know, that music is not popular now. So we forget like uh, how kind of shocking it is for him to put like dance hall kinds of things in right. his pieces. Turkish Turkish military band music, yeah, all of that. Exactly, sort of exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's just that's just what composers have always done. It's just that now um, the popular music is very different, right? Very different than what you're used to if you're if you're just thinking about music that 
uh, comes from 100, 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that new music can, and a new opera can serve as a gateway to old opera, old opera <laughs> in, <Right. laughs> uh, in some ways, um, you know, like not everyone is going to go back and want to come and see Bohem. Not everyone will, but mm -hmm. there might be one who does, who wouldn't have. And that's already one more person. And I think um, that that one person having an emotional and beautiful experience is worth it, is worth doing it. Yeah. I have one more question for you. But, but uh, before we get there, how can folks learn more about you and how can they check out Rise coming up? Oh, um, uh, you can go to my website, which is www.kamalashankaram.com. Um, you can also go look at my band's website, which is Bombay Ricky, Ricky with an E like a cocktail. <laughs> and um, Rise opens on March 5th at the Kennedy Center. Um, and I hope that we will see you there. I would love to continue having this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. All right, hard-hitting question for the very end. You mentioned that this uh, opera uh, surrounds the story of a young Girl Scout. What's your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Oh, my gosh. You know, <laughs> I always said Tagalongs. Tagalongs, the peanut butter one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like Thin Mints, but only if they're frozen. <laughs> oh, frozen Thin Mints. <laughs> uh, instead of uh, written in stone, maybe frozen as hard yes. as stone or to yes. draw that connection. <laughs> Pamela, thank you, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today. We're looking forward to Rise. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Another Bombay Ricky track there called Taki Rari. And let me uh, make a quick correction while we're here. The, the name of the track that got us into it, the project is called Electric Bajavi. The tune is called Megalodon. So uh, two really hmm. cool tunes there by Bombay Ricky to sandwich the conversation that I had with Kamala Sankaram. Before we get into the fourth movement, you know, one thing I want to ask you, sort of the, the the question that I teased before we got into the interview, the, the idea of what should be written in stone. I'm from the South where there has always been a conversation about Confederate monuments from the time I was a child. You know, I, I always, that, that, that conversation has just been a part of it. I wonder what uh, your initial reactions are to the idea of things written in stone or the question, should things be written in stone, literally or proverbially, considering That's how we one. evolve as people and, you know. Yeah, so are we talking like commandment level things? Anything, any, any nuance of the conversation. See, the more I think about it, the more I want to say, I think that we should have very few things written in stone and those should be the ones that are the easiest, you know, the, you don't kill anybody, you know, the, the, the basics, how to be a good person, right? Because things have changed, things evolve, things, you know, 
or at least you hope things will get better sure. right through change i'm thinking so about so yeah i'm i'm reluctant to have something written in stone just because you know there's a lot of things in the constitution that we need to get rid of and a lot I mean, of people, we, all, all the people who wrote it, first of all, we need to get them out of here. But, but, what, I'm, but what I'm saying is, is that wouldn't you consider the Constitution essentially stone? Uh, no, because we're, that's what all of the amendments are, right? So that the Constitution isn't even something that has been written in stone. It's something that uh, has evolved over the years. There's even But been everybody the, points to it as the sure. founding fathers. There's... Yeah, but 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 I'm saying not even that is written in stone. There's even been trivia question. There's even been a an amendment taken away. Do you do you, do you do you know what that is, or or can you think of that? Uh, was it the drinking one? Right. That yeah. that was once written in stone, quote unquote, amendment. but it wasn't really because it was taken away. So even what our democracy is built on is not something that's written in stone. It's something that's written on paper and something that can be added to and something that has already been taken away from. So Maybe, I don't even think that can be cited as an, 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 an example. What about certain amendments? Because the Second Amendment certainly is not going anywhere, right? That's stone. You never Has know. Has anybody taken that you out? You never know. I mean, but, but my point is, I don't think we can say that about any of them, considering the the non-written in stone nature of the Constitution. I, I, don't, I don't think that we can give any of the, you know, Roe v. Wade, mm -hmm. you know, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, women's rights during Women's History Month, you know, that is something that, in many people's opinion from their perspectives, when it first took hold, was written in stone. And we, we're saying that's being challenged, right? So I don't think there's anything that we can say is going to stick around for good, not even that beloved Second Amendment yeah. that, that, that people, you know, always, always go to. I see what you're saying. Uh, to get back to you, to answer it, I'm reluctant to put things in stone. Yeah. Well, I, I will be uh, leading a, a pre-opera conversation that's going to explore some of these things, the way that women's history has been contextualized and recontextualized. So I'm really looking forward to that. Huge shout out to everyone over at the Kennedy Center for having me, to all of the composers. Uh, another special thank you to Kamala for joining me here on Triloquy. We're going to get into this fourth movement. Uh, the piece I want to use to transition us, Scott, so um, I already mentioned that I went and did uh, bassoon master classes down at the Schwab School of Music. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give a shout out to Eric Lopez, who's down there pursuing an artist diploma. He brought a piece to the master class that inspired me to take a look at it. And I'm, I'm going to start practicing it and see if I can't perform it sometime soon. I, I, I always considered the ultimate compliment being, oh, wow, I played this so well that someone else wants to play it. Mm. So that is that is something that Eric Lopez did for me. So shout out to Eric Lopez for bringing in the concertino by Brazilian composer Francisco Mignone. We are going to hear Eric Lopez's take on it this time, of, of course, because it's not recorded. But the one and only Frank Morelli has recorded it. So we're going to listen to the end of that second movement here to get us into our fourth movement. You know, Frank Morelli is really good about using that tongue very, um, 
how can I say, athletically, you know, just showing show the world that, yes, he can double and triple tongue and uh, articulate all the notes. So, you know, shout out to Frank Morelli. Shout out to Francisco Mignone for writing a, a, a such an incredible piece for the bassoon. Shout out to Eric Lopez for inspiring me to take a look at it myself. And shout out to all of you for sticking around for this final movement. This is going to be a short final movement this week. But what I do want to mention, so in addition to uh, hosting master classes down there, I was able to address the Black Schwab Society, where the Black students were able to come and, you know, air their grievances with me. We we explored lots of different conversations. There were a few allies and potential accomplices there, and mm-hmm. it was a, a a really rich experience. I'm really grateful for the experience to get to do that. I started the meeting by laying out a few points that I do not sacrifice on, <laughs> and that. I believe that the students should not sacrifice on. So the very first of them, and I mean, it's right here at the top of my list. I have my notes pulled up. The very first of them is don't let anyone gaslight your black experience. Remember when we started uh, the downbeat with uh, the Paul Robeson excerpt when he was in court Mm -hmm. and the, the person overseeing the hearing was like, I don't know what this racism is you're talking about because you graduated from Rutgers and X, Y, and Z and da, da, da. That's one of the prime... Uh, tools used to try to get folks to think differently about their own black experience, you know, gaslighting that black experience, saying that it's not true, it's not happening. So the first thing that I told those students is be aware of that tactic and don't let it take hold on you, even when it appears in the news, as it did this week. I want to play a little uh, excerpt here uh, where an EU official calls Ukraine refugee discrimination Fake news. Let's take a listen, Scott. Members of the European Parliament for Poland assured us that these are fake news. This is not true. And honestly, we have not been able to corroborate that. Uh, those kind of I have corroborated it. I have talked to Africans and Indians who have both said, they said that they were being pushed off trains, that they were being left behind. These are women and children. Any discrimination among people who are fleeing the conflict, the basis of any personal characteristic, including citizenship or uh, skin color, is completely unacceptable. So that was Sarah Sidner uh, asking the question there, mm-hmm. CNN's Sarah Sidner. People are beginning, and maybe I shouldn't say beginning to, but something that I have started to hear in regards to what's going on over in Europe right now is this as an information war. So there are certain things, certain firsthand accounts we have gotten, certain things that we're hearing from EU officials like the man that we just heard from there, and dissonance, some 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 things not connecting. What's your reaction to hearing that, considering what we've talked about between our between us and also here on this podcast concerning the nuance of what's happening over there in Europe, the fact that we have to remember that there are black folks and people of color in the midst of mm-hmm. the Ukrainian refugees being discriminated against. So we have that. We have this EU official saying something different. What, what's your reaction? What's your response? What else would he have said? <laughs> go on. No, say well, more. Say no, more. No, what is he? Is he going to jump on there and go, yeah. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we didn't, we don't know why that happened. What is? No, he's going to try to make an excuse for it. Okay, he's the spokesperson. So he's the excuseman. Let the, oh, that's a good one, excuseman. So let's connect that to the arts. Okay. Mm. Okay. How? If orchestras, opera houses, radio stations, conservatories, schools of music, you name it, 
if they are alleging that racism doesn't have a place here through the statements that you put on the websites, through the things you say live, even by programming music by black composers, if they are saying this sort of thing does not exist, this sort of racism discrimination doesn't exist where we are and is unacceptable, based on the material that we all have from our lived experiences, why are we supposed to just take that and say, oh, okay, well, they must be one of the good institutions. So mm. it's, it's, it's fine. They're safe. Mm. I think this is a one example of what so many people, so many women, so many people of color experience on a day-to-day basis, being gaslit into believing that something you know to be true is not true. I hope this EU official has been called into someone's office. I'm not saying I want anybody to lose their job necessarily, but I hope that he has been enlightened on reality. I hope that someone has come to him and said, actually, this is what's happening. This is this is the true tea. Only so that we can all learn and that we can all take a moment to acknowledge the fact that anti-Blackness is global and that even in the midst of war, there are people experiencing this. We have to be empowered to really speak our truth and to make sure that we aren't being gaslit into believing something different. Continue to stand firm. Don't be talked out of your training. Don't be talked out of your lived experience. Don't be talked out of your truth. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 